You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Podcast family, this week we have a very special guest. He's an entrepreneur, a business owner, and the former fair manager at the Greater Gulf State Fair in Mobile, Alabama. You may have even seen him on the hit television show, Shark Tank. Ladies and gentlemen from Mobile, Alabama, Mr. Scott Tyndall. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. So we, you and I have known each other for probably five or six years now. We met through the fair industry. Uh, I remember at one point we were trying to even lock down a deal um, to bring, I think it was Conjure the, or the Giant mm-hmm. Games down to the fair, but it was right as you were transitioning out of the fair industry um, and back into private enterprise. For those people who don't know you, can you give folks um, kind of a little rundown on yourself and, and who you are, how you came in to be in the fair industry and what you're up to now? Sure. Yeah, I'll try and keep it brief because it's a kind of long and meandering story. Um, but short version is I was born here in Mobile and uh, grew up in the public school system, went off to college and then um, worked for a few years in education. I was a teacher and a coach and then transitioned into law school. Uh, really enjoyed um, law school and then came home and started in the private practice of law and just realized that it wasn't the same. So then I had an opportunity to get in the startup world and had a friend who was starting a company and he asked me if I'd come be uh, his first employee. And so then we worked on moving men and weapons around the world to protect against Somali-based piracy, which is you know, pretty unique, but it, it does factor into the story here. And so I worked with him for a few years and really learned how to solve problems, how to innovate, how to think differently and do new things. And um, from that, I'd been with him for a few years and had my own idea that I was ready to, to transition into. And so, uh, you know, I've kind of this mindset that creativity is thinking new things, but innovation is actually doing those new things, right? And so we've got to transfer from creativity to innovation sometimes. So uh, I had this concept of basically taking men's neckties and uh, turning it into a rental platform, much like Netflix does or, or did back when we still had to send DVDs through the mail. So that's what we did. We sent men's neckties through the mail. They could keep them as long as they wanted, send them back as soon as they wanted. And we were really fortunate, got some really lucky breaks and were able to get cast on the show you mentioned uh, on ABC, Shark Tank. So through Shark Tank, um, had a tremendous response, gained a lot of new subscribers and um, did not get a deal on the show, but we got a 50% offer from Kevin O'Leary. And uh, that really kind of generated more enthusiasm. A few months after the show, we sold to a private equity group out of Manhattan. And so then uh, I was looking to see what was next. And so I had some friends ask me if I'd be interested in running a nonprofit. I said, yes, sir, that sounds intriguing. What do you have in mind? And they said, what about the Greater Gulf State Fair? And I was thinking to myself, like, I don't know anything about this industry. You know, I attended the fair as a kid, uh, but I didn't grow up in 4-H. And I I didn't um, really know much more than what it was like to go every year. And to be honest, it it had been through highs and lows and probably didn't have the best reputation in our community. And so I took a a few weeks and kind of thought it through and tried to break down what we would do if uh, if I did go there. And um, like I said, I I didn't know anything about the industry before I started. And the folks on the board at the time said, well, did you know anything about, you know, fighting pirates or renting ties? I said, no. I said, well, we just need you to kind of bring the same kind of uh, innovative thought process to what we're trying to do here. And I was very fortunate. It was a, a young board who was interested in innovating and doing new things. And um, 
we kind of were able to put a plan together uh, to get really aggressive and transform what we were doing. And, you know, as we were going along, we said we want to create the cleanest, most family friendly event in America. Yep. Not like the cleanest fair, not the most family friendly fair, like the cleanest event. I was just about I was just about to ask you about that, because last time you were on the show, um, you had talked about wanting to create that uh, cleanest, most family friendly experience in America. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you expand a bit more on how you did that and what it meant to the community of Mobile? Sure. What you're really trying to do there is um, prime your guests. You want to anchor them and and give them the framework of what you're going to provide. Right. So we're using these. cognitive biases and we want to frame it up for our guests so in reality do we have to be the cleanest most family friendly event in america we don't we don't know if we are or not but to our guests if we can be the cleanest most family friendly event they've ever been to in their mind it's confirming what we've already planted in them and that yeah maybe this is you know what they say it's going to be so then the only way you can live up to that standard is you have to hold that standard across through your entire team through your staff through your volunteers and that was a concern. So what we started doing was we created a, a program we called the Training Grounds and actually went and recruited former Disney cast members, former Disney College program students to come in and really try and help us create this new standard. And we wanted, you know, we used to say, if Disney does it and it's effort-based, we can do it. If they do it and it's budget-based, obviously we have to evaluate yes, our budget and, that's and, not and do what we can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then we went around and bought every trash picker within 100 miles that you could find at Lowe's or anywhere else and equipped everyone on the team with these trash pickers. And after a while, really after about the first day, our guests saw people walking around picking up trash and they started doing it for us. Like if they saw something next to a trash can, they would pick it up and put it in the trash can for us because we were already establishing a standard of what it was supposed to be. Um, before that, it was not uncommon to have hundreds of pounds of trash littered across the grounds every night once the midway closed, right? And I think, I think we've seen that some places as well. But our, our goal was to have any piece of trash that hit the ground, to have it off the ground within 30 seconds. And if we do that consistently enough, and, and our board was great. Our board was out walking the, the midway, picking up trash with their trash pickers. Um, our staff was, our volunteers were, the Disney pro- college program kids. And when you start creating that environment and that culture, that's what I'm saying, now our guests start doing it with us, right? Or they notice it or they make sure to hit the trash can instead of dropping it on the ground. If it's pristine and clean, one piece of trash on the ground is noticeable. Yeah. If there's trash everywhere, the next piece of trash is not noticeable. And it makes and it easier people, for the people to yeah. throw more trash on the ground. Exactly. Or, or they think that's the appropriate thing to do. They're like, oh, I guess this is what we do here. We're just drop it in, you know, drop your cup in line when you're waiting on the the mega drop or something, you know? Right. And um, we just tried to establish a new standard. And honestly, if you go that aggressive with it, we were, like I said, we were able to do it by the end of the first day. And it, and it spread throughout the community. They, they took ownership in their fair. Absolutely. Yeah. The number one thing that we wanted to do was create a sense of community. We'd kind of lost that. And so what we decided we were going to do is we we're going to take every line item in the budget reevaluate it and decide if there were any ways we could reinvest that in the community mm-hmm. rather than outsourcing that to funds outside of the community. Um, and that was really important for us. We even did the same thing with the, you know, the ticket office before we were outsourcing the work to the ticket office. And instead we got together and created a plan where a different nonprofit every night would staff the ticket office and we would pay them what we would have paid outsourced to staffing. And so now we've got, you know, 10 nights of the fair, we've got 10 different nonprofits really bought in 
And right. we probably had 20 or 25 that wanted to be a part of the experience. So now they're not just volunteers. They're, they're part of the communal effort. You know, we're all doing this together. Sure. We also partnered with the public school system and um, they, you know, asked them what their biggest need was, where were they lacking money? And they said in the libraries. So we partnered with them to have, you know, we have the largest school system in the state, 60,000 students to have all elementary school students, all high school students, all 60,000 students with the ability to sell tickets to the fair and the school system would keep a percentage of each ticket they sold. And through that, we were able to raise almost $200,000 for the school system, which is a lot of money, you know? And, and so it was really just that intentional and purposeful effort every day to provide your, for your community in a year round effort and not be 10 days at the fair. Uh, I think before the perception was the fair rolls in, the carnival collects the money and then rolls out of town. Yeah. And we were just really determined to try and change that perception down here along the Gulf Coast. Do you feel like you succeeded? I do. I really do. And uh, I've been gone a few years, but I think they've done a, a good job of carrying forth some of the uh, the things that we built into the culture. Um, yeah. And I think the community still looks at it fondly. Well, and I think, um, you know, especially that kind of environment with your uh, and relationship with your community this year, more than others even is critical. Um, you know, I, I was just talking to uh, recording a different podcast um, with one of our other guests for the season. And, you know, we both agreed that, you know, OC fair and the state fair of Texas and, you know, the New Mexico state fair and these major fairs aren't going anywhere. They're going to take a hit, but they're going to survive this protracted lockdown, but smaller County fairs, smaller events are at potentially real risk of disappearing in the middle of all this. And when you have built yourself into the community as part of that community, which can be very difficult to do admittedly, I think it makes all the difference when it comes to legislature's funding and, and having a voice in the community and being able to survive this lockdown, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think the more ingrained in your community you are, the higher your likelihood of success, right? It doesn't guarantee success, but you're increasing your likelihood of a successful outcome. Sure. Um, I also think that uh, these large institutions should not think they're immune to the changing environment. And I don't care how large of a, of a state fair you are. That doesn't mean you won't exist. You just may exist in a new capacity in It'll new look ways. Yeah. Having, to, yes, having to change a substantial amount of historically what they thought they did, which means they are also going to have to think about ways of, you know, not just thinking new things, but actually doing those new things. Sure. You know, and I was talking and a to- a lot of that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but a lot of that's yeah, been driven by the governments, right? Each local and state government is going to drive different changes and innovation. Yeah. Uh, OC is going to have something different than Texas is going to have something different than the Big E. You know, yeah. Everybody's going to look different there. Yeah. When I was talking with um, Jay Spicer, who's the fair manager down at Martin County Fair in, in uh, Southeast Florida, in Stewart, Florida, he's worked his, his grounds. Um, they're probably the size of your parking lot. I mean, they are mm-hmm. so tiny. And he's been working for several years on raising capital to move the grounds to a new spot. And he's really, he's doing a really wise thing with what it's, he's looking at. He doesn't want to just build a fairgrounds. He wants to build a grounds that's an event plex that can handle anything and everything for the community because his vision, um, and I think a lot of fairs could look to this, um, is that his vision is something that if he's ingrained in the community, if he, you know, handles anything and everything, it makes it a lot harder to ignore 
the fair. And I think it's easy sometimes for our guests to ignore the fairgrounds because to them, the fair is um, 10 days or five days or whatever in October. And beyond that, the fair doesn't exist, but our fairs play a really important role in our communities. Yeah, absolutely. The more you can do that, the better off you can. I mean, I want to say that by the time I left, we were probably doing events 150 nights a year on our campus. Um, And those are just the events. I mean, you're in a, you're down on the Gulf coast. I mean, how, how often have you had FEMA stage at, at your round? Yeah. So, I mean, especially this year, you know, we're seeing a lot of that. Yeah. You got Um, one more sitting out there on the Yucatan Peninsula still thinking about it. Teed up. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's important. So FEMA staging, I'm power staging, even getting creative. And like we started hosting cross country races and got to where we ended up even hosting the Sunbelt Conference cross country championship uh, on our on our campus, which no one would have ever thought, were, you know, even remarkably possible. Um, so you, know, you just got to get really creative. You got to think, think about ways to tackle the world. And I think another thing that we've got to do and too often we're thinking day to day. Right. I'm not thinking day to day. I'm not thinking week to week. I'm not even thinking month to month. I'm year thinking about the year. spring and the summer. Yeah, I'm thinking right now. I wonder what is the to the best of our knowledge. What's the world's going to look like? What are the possibilities of what it could look like? And how can I, you know, adapt, thrive, and uh, well, adapt, survive, and thrive in that environment? Sure. So let's take a look back earlier in 2020. Um, I want to go back to the beginning of March, and this is a question that I'm asking everybody who comes on this season as a guest. Um, if you think back to the beginning of March, the virus has started to spread through the United States. Um, but I don't feel like we really had a grasp on what it was going to look like. Mm-hmm. And then March 11th hits. That's the day that World Health declares it's officially a global pandemic. And it's the date that within our industry was eye-opening because the Houston Livestock Show canceled just days into their run. Um, right. Now, you're, I, for me, that's when I was like, all right, this is actually going to be serious because they just lost a quadrillion dollars just shutting that one event down. And, you know, I, I knew at that point something really big was going on. Now, while you're no longer within fairs, you are an entrepreneur and a small business owner. What's going through your mind when you see the largest event in the fair industry pull the plug like that? Um, you start to think maybe some people have more information than I do. Right. I was thinking they must have some information I don't have. And that trickled another couple of days. And then on it was either March 14th or 15th when the NBA shut right. down. Then I was thinking, OK, all these NBA owners are billionaires. They certainly have more information than I do. And if they're shutting down their venues to lose a substantial amount of money to alter the season. Clearly, I don't have all the information. And so I have to start at that point. It kind of triggered me to get as deep as I could and really start spending four to six hours a day trying to understand what was going on, how our, our clients and our partners would pivot. We do a lot of work in the restaurant and hospitality industry, um, tourism industry. So you really start to think, I've got to learn these things because a lot of the people I, I work with on a day-to-day basis, they don't have time to spend four hours digging through this stuff. Um, and so it's my job to provide them with, with you know, kind of, the information as it exists or, or advice on how we're going to move forward. So you got to get, you got to get them the right information so they can make their decisions quickly. Cause it seemed like at least here in Albuquerque, you know, a lot of business owners were sitting back thinking this was only going to be six, eight weeks, you know, Mm -hmm. a couple of months. And 
Well, Nobody you also really have to prepare that you may not be able to make that decision for yourself, right? Yeah. The, the government is making that decision for you, depending on your municipality. I mean, oh, yeah. right now we see in Florida, there's virtually no restrictions uh, related to COVID. Uh, in New York, severe restrictions. Yep. In the Midwest, there, you know, Chicago is going to let you do 25% capacity into a restaurant, um, but there's no outdoor seating once it's 30 degrees in Chicago. Exactly. I mean, the weather is now tough, factoring. They're not going to do that. Right. The weather now becomes a factor. And for a lot of us, um, well, the, you know, the, the restaurants industry here, that, right? I oh, mean, yeah. We, we know, you know, 10 days of rain, sets a tough run. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For that. Absolutely. We had a lot of restaurants here that kind of sat back and they weren't sure um, what what was real. I think we really had trouble disseminating what was accurate information from what was political information. Um, and and. Mm -hmm. It seems for me, I want to say that the restaurants that moved fast and moved early succeeded. Um, but we've got hundreds of restaurants across the state that aren't coming back. You know, when you look at business, well, there's a lot of things that aren't coming back after this. Yeah. I think what you see in, in that industry and all industries are people that have processes and procedures in place, much better chance of survival. Sure. If you've been living free and loose the whole time, when things get tight, you don't have anything to lean back on. You don't have any any kind of structure and framework. And I think this is important for the fair industry too. And I'll tell you why. Um, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has more experience than me inside the fair industry. But what I do know is that across the spectrum, nonprofits do not tighten their belts like small business owners and, and for-profit ventures. I think these fairs need to start looking at themselves as not nonprofits, but for purpose entities. Hmm. Nonprofit is a tax status, but your purpose is to fulfill your mission. I know everybody's got their own mission, but they're going to have to really look at budgets and start evaluating what is essential, what is not essential to meet their mission and to meet their purpose. And some of the things that we want to do uh, may not, and we have done in the past, that may not align going forward. I think they also should take a look at every line item in their budget. And if they haven't renegotiated uh, terms with, you know, whoever's running their dump, you know, whoever's picking up the waste at the event or whoever's yep. doing your dumpster contract or uh, these things that years and years and years can get passed down and we don't really think about them. We don't evaluate right. Maybe they float up a little bit each year and we just, oh, that's, uh, I don't, you know, remember everybody's names. You know what I mean? That's such and such. Like, this is what they do. We just, we use them. Okay, right. well, you may still need to use them, but in order to protect yourself and to save your organization, you need to get competitive bids uh, yeah. from people as well. Because, I mean, for some of these grounds, all that money adds up. If you change a contract with somebody and it saves, you know, $10,000, $3,000, $1,500, like those add up for some of these small grounds. And if all of a sudden you add them all up and you go, well, we just saved $35,000 this year. That's and now, now you just maybe group. save somebody's job. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, exactly. And I can tell you on my end of the spectrum is um, the one thing that I'm more relieved of than anything is um, as we started, you know, we built out Conjure, we got it in the market, we got it successful and we didn't attempt any other projects until any debt that we incurred for building out Conjure was paid off. Mm -hmm. When that was ready and we knew Conjure was stable, then we started to expand on play with giants and build that out. And we had debt on that until last September and the, the best thing we did um, was get that debt paid off last year. Um, yeah. That gave us, 
you know, that gave us cash flow through for us to, you know, being a small, like I say, it's a small business, self-employed. I mean, I don't have any employees, but by getting mm -hmm. that debt managed and getting it out of here, that gave us the cash flow we needed for Sarah and I personally to be able to make it through this. I mean, I've, I've talked to a handful of people, entertainers and, and service providers through the industry. There's a few of them that aren't coming back. Um, they may. I, you know, I think the longer this goes on, you may see that list continue to grow. Yeah. I think uh, right now we all have this kind of magic idea that it's just going to go away. Um, that's not going to happen over the winter. We're going to see a continued increase in cases. Even once we have um, therapeutics and possibly a vaccine available, uh, creating the number of dosages is going to be a challenge. Yep. But what's also going to be a challenge is the political environment that we all kind of live in where, you know, 40% of the country is saying they wouldn't take the vaccine even once it's readily available. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be a challenge for everyone, especially people who are in the event industry, right? Yep. We may have to find some form of, uh, you know, collecting information on who's at our facility at given times and doing you know, track and trace to know who was where, when. Um, and I can see some municipalities requiring that for large events. Oh, sure. You know, and whether you, you know, want to do it or not, it's kind of like, hey, if you want to go to this concert and this concert hall, you got to allow track and trace. And if you don't, then you don't have to go to this event. Yeah. Um, and that's, I, that's I don't think that, that, I think some people will have a strong political opinion about that, but they just may be, I say we have to live in the world the way it exists, not the way we wish it existed. It just may be part of what municipalities For a while. Do. Yeah, I think for probably 18 to 24 months, that's a real possibility. But And that's, you know, some of the deeper things that as, as business owners and event producers and fair managers, that, that side of the spectrum is going to have to think of. I think there's a, a general feeling from a lot of entertainers that is, you know, oh, if maybe if we, if it's cleared by spring or summer and we start getting our fares in, well, then we'll just all go back to doing fairs again, but except not all of us are going to have, there's not going to be room for all of us because right. that fair that maybe had, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollar entertainment budget might only have a $40,000 entertainment budget now. That's right. And that goes back to being state by state, right? If, if um, Illinois says you can only have 25% capacity yep. at your event, you may go, you may now be from a hundred thousand person event to much smaller, yeah. you know? Um, and that you're right, that's going to shrink budgets drastically. And one thing that we haven't really talked about, and it's kind of this world that I find that people in Berenshire are just terrified of talking about it, is the carnival contracts. These carnival contracts, if you're only doing a fraction of the people that you were doing before, mm -hmm. these are going to get, start to get altered really fast. Yeah. And uh, especially as some come to near term now. Uh, but I just see, you know, it was shocking to me once I started learning the industry to learn how different the kind of, maybe, you know, financial terms were for each of these different organizations. And uh, that's going to have to be somewhere where everybody has to buckle down together because, um, you know, whether the fair industry, you know, you know, the carnival and the fair industry really can't live without one another at this point, kind of tied to the hip. Yeah. They, and, and they're going to have to, both sides are going to have to come in and say, here's what we're going to give and here's what, what we need. And everybody's got to work together or else it all falls apart. Yep. And that's going to be tough. And it may be, you know, if you used to get 50 pieces of, of equipment, you may only be getting 30 pieces of equipment, you know? Um, and what does that do to the guest experience when sure. people are so used to one thing and now you give them a scaled down version of that, right? Are you going to charge them the same amount of money? 
you can charge me the same amount of money for half the experience that you used to give me. That's going to be tough. And yeah. then that starts to squeeze everybody everywhere around. Not to mention that we've got about 30 million unemployed um, who are burning through their savings right now. And, you know, current economic spending is about on par to where it's been, but that's mainly because of people uh, burning through their savings rather than uh, just this increase in, you know, economic activity. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like we keep hearing this, this phrase from our politicians and our leaders and the media, you know, quote, the new normal. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it's a phrase, to, at least to me, it kind of gets a little annoying to you because I don't think there's anything normal about what's going on. I don't think we should accept it as the new normal. But what goes through your head when you look at, you know, the chaos that has been 2020 and then you hear people say, oh, well, this is just the new normal. Um, I think that's a, a misnomer um, because I think we, every day is a, new, is a new normal. Every single day is a new normal. And as we go forward, we're, we are only going forward on most of these things, not backwards. This pandemic has uh, greatly increased the rate of change and innovation and technologies that are being used. I mean, I, I don't see us going anywhere backwards. I, I think the way I look at it, almost each month of the pandemic, is worth like a year's worth of time on expediting increased technology and changing the way we do things. Um, we see it in education right now. And some of the hardest industries that have ever, you know, they're so against change. Education so against change. Restaurants so against change. They don't have a choice. You know, if you want to survive, you will change. The fair industry is the same way. Very little has changed about the fair industry in the past 40 years. They're going to have to change if they want to survive. And, um, it doesn't matter how I feel about that. My feelings are mostly irrelevant to that, right? So right. my job is to help people put themselves in a position where they can increase the likelihood of a successful outcome, not to guarantee success, but to give them the best chances. So Annie Duke has a, a great kind of story about this. She's a former professional poker player. And what she says is everybody likes to say, oh, he's playing chess while they're playing checkers, right? That's supposed to be, you know, uh, a compliment how, how much smarter you are but that's not really a good analogy for life because in chess a computer can tell you the exact right move to make every single time yeah there's always the right move right so her analogy which I, I i try and use is that life is much more like poker i have my cards you have your cards we both know what you know we have but we don't know what the other person has and we don't know what cards are going to come out on the table so every time we turn over a new card, that's new information. Yep. With that new information, we have to reevaluate our decision-making. Am I still making the best decision? Should I continue on? Should I hold? Should I hold? You know, all the things that go into poker. But every time you get a new card, you get new information. So if we're resistant to change in the face of new information, we are decreasing the likelihood of a successful outcome. It doesn't guarantee a success. But it, when we can increase that likelihood – you know, we've got a far better chance of coming out on the other side of a pandemic. I mean, this works in normal life, but it's especially in pandemic yeah. life. We have got to evaluate that every step of the way. And there's no shame in changing your mind or changing your opinion, especially when you have new information on the table. So I, I think fairs just really have to stop, pump the brakes, pause and go. All right. Line item through line item. What do we do every day? Um, what do we do in the budget? But then also, what kind of effort do we need to put forth to ensure we survive? 
right? This has right. got to be a year long, all the time grind. Treat it like a like it's your own business, and find new ways to generate money, find new ways to save money, and um, you know, just the gritty you're going to make it. If you, if you're not gritty, unless you got a giant you know golden pillow that you're resting on, and those that have state budgets those golden pillows don't exist. States are having drastic reductions in the amount of sales tax they're collecting, the amount of other taxes. So yep. um, when that tax, you know, when that budget comes back around, just assuming you're going to get the same budget you've always received, I, I think is faulty logic at this point. Yeah, I would agree. Now, as a, um, a small business owner, I mean, how have you pivoted and how have you have helped businesses around the area and mobile pivot during all of this? A lot of what we just talked about, right? It's really evaluating what you do, how you do, why you do. Um, figuring out what life is going to look like in a few months and setting yourself up for success before that happens. Um, in the restaurant space, really integrating new technologies. There are technologies in, available through both the tipping system and ordering platforms and reservations and even as simple as monitoring your draft beer flow to ensure that you're getting... Uh, as much volume out of each keg as you can. In the past, it was easy to ignore those things, but it goes back to what you were talking about before. All those pennies start to add up, right? And that starts to make a big difference. And so like we did the same thing inside of our, our company as well and evaluating, right, what do we do? How do we do it every day? Why does it matter? What industries need our help the most? You know, uh, What technologies are we already invested in or partnered with that uh, really are, are more helpful now than ever? And uh, really, uh, not thinking about it on a day-to-day basis, but trying to think forward three, six, nine months so that um, we can continue to evaluate those cards. Every time a card gets flipped over on the table, you know, we know what that means uh, for ourselves, for our clients, for our partners. Do you feel like there's a day that, and I don't know, it could be four months, six months, 18, 24 months, I don't know when, that a more practical version of normal comes back? I think you would have to define practical. You know, I, I think we're in a pretty practical, we're in a pretty practical version of normal under the circumstances we have. I think it's entirely based upon um, governmental mandates. I think the people themselves will find a normal amongst themselves. It is about the government restrictions or lack thereof in each state that will determine what that looks like. Uh, to give you an idea, during the 1918 pandemic, uh, we required masks for three years. So it was a three year cycle. They wore masks until 1921. All right. So, um, you know, define, define normal. Uh, I think that's different for everybody. I don't know. I I think my normal, and you know, it's also about our perception of reality. You you and I and and anyone else could listen to this entire podcast and we don't have the the same perception or the same understanding of the conversation, even though you and I were both part of it. Yeah. Now you're married, correct? I am. Yep. And three girls? Three little girls, 10, 7, and 4. And how have they adjusted through all this? I think kids are super resilient. I mean, they are most resilient. Um, and I think probably the younger, the, the better. They don't even know, you know, well, the totality of the circumstances. Um, but I, I think if given an opportunity – Kids are the most creative and innovative. They were the ones that will come up with the solutions. Uh, my daughters started making these beaded lanyards uh, that clip onto masks so that the kids wouldn't lose their mask when they you know, have to take them on and off at school all the time. Uh, I would never, never thought of that. 
Um, so, so they've like got, a, they created like their own little clip, business. like, like what you put on your sunglasses, but it, it's for your mask. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's beads and they customize it with, you know, your name or a slogan or favorites, you know, name of your favorite sports team. And they have all these designs and colors. And they said, well, can you teach us how to set up a Instagram and an Etsy page? I said, sure. So, you know, here they are at 10, seven and four running their own little business. Um, but you know, they also learn business lessons. Like one of mine said, Oh, you know, we, we make $10 every time we sell a lanyard. I said, no, you collect $10 every time you sign a land, sell a lanyard. He's like, Oh no, no. I said, well, where do you think you get the beads? They're like, Oh, well, do you buy them for us? I was like, yeah, those are not free. You just said I bought them for you. You know, so um, I think there, there are lessons that we can all learn all the time, but kids are resilient. You know, the homeschooling uh, in the spring was, you know, new and, and different. And, um, but I think given kids an opportunity to thrive, they will, and, and they'll come up with some of the best solutions we have. And, and maybe kids, that's part of what fairs can do. Are your kids back in school now? Are you back in? Yeah, they are. Yeah, we're back in school full time. And are they, is your, your area seeing any spiking cases among kids in schools? Not so much in kids. I think we see like a lot of things, um, case increase kind of the same as it does across the South, but we're not seeing a ton in schools. We do wear masks in our school. Um, but, you know, it goes back to testing standards. It's, it's hard to know what is a positive case um, and what's not when different municipalities and states use different PCR numbers to determine a positive result. So we're not comparing apples to apples. Yeah. That seems like it's been that way a lot is it, you know, these cases, I feel like we don't, we're not getting all the full picture because like you say, so many States have different standards for, you know, what counts as a positive. And, you know, I've always questioned, I've never gotten an answer to this. If somebody tests positive um, and then, you know, they go home, they're fairly asymptomatic or they feel a little bit sick. And then they go back two weeks later to test again, as they start to feel better and they test positive again and they go back a week later and they get another, I like, or, are all of those positive cases rolled in or does it only count as the original? I, I yeah, don't know. You know, it's, I mean, yeah. Fox, Fox 35 in Orlando caught the Florida department of health. Um, I guess some guy rolled his motorcycle on, I don't know, I 95 or something. They tested him as they went into the ER. He, I guess he dies from his injuries the next day after his death, the, the test comes back positive and they're like, well, that's a COVID death. I'm like, you know, you don't suppose because his liver is splattered all over the interstate, that's part of the problem. It's a good question. <laughs> I, I just, I, it would be nice if we could get um, what I feel like are more straight answers. Um, but going back to you with the, the family life, um, it's tough enough to be a father um, and, and a strong leader and support for your family. Do you feel an especially um, like a heavier weight? during this pandemic to be strong for your family? Um, yeah, you always want to set a good example for your kids the best you can. I think the pandemic gave me an opportunity to slow down a little bit. I was traveling a lot before that, and it gave me an opportunity to really spend more time with my, my children in ways that I probably wasn't able to before. And I uh, really got into starting to cook more, and it was fun to cook for them and make them breakfast every day and make them dinner and uh, just really – get to know their personalities a little bit more because they're going to get a lot older a lot faster um yeah. but as for the gravity of it i think it's there's a lot of seriousness and gravity of being a dad regardless agreed um, the pandemic just gives us new opportunities and new ways to 
to try and do that. I like that you look at it as a new opportunity. It's not an easy one. I mean, I don't have a choice, right? So it goes back to that. Like being optimistic doesn't guarantee you any level of success. It just helps you find opportunities amongst the chaos, right? So there's going to be winners and losers from this pandemic, right? We're starting to see them already. Um, The larger you are, the more tech you are, the more easy it was for you to integrate new concepts, new opportunities, and take advantage of these. The slower you were, smaller you were, the harder it is for you to make fundamental changes within your company, you're struggling, right? Uh, this transition to tech, to, to digital, I mean, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, Tesla, uh, Microsoft, NVIDIA, they're the winners. You know, traditional brick and mortar is going to be the losers. And we have to look at that inside of our communities. And it does not matter how any of us feel about any of these things, right? The, the, in general, the macro doesn't care about our feelings. Correct. But on a micro level, we can take care of our local businesses, right? On a micro level, we can actually make those fundamental changes. You can't control what somebody in a different state is going to do with enough they're buying on Amazon or supporting the, you know, the bookstore next door. But on a micro level, you can. On a community-wide level, you can. You can organize that. I mean, that's a place that fairs could really, really gain some wonderful traction in the community is by supporting their local businesses, giving them opportunities, sharing them on their platforms. A lot of fairs have very large social platforms. Yeah. You know, well, uh, creating and- this idea or creating this concept that we can support those amongst us. Yeah, we were talking about that with a um, with one of my other guests. We had talked about how it's so easy for fairs when you're looking for sponsorship money to fall into that trap of only making that business's phone ring one time a year. Hey, you know, we got you supported us five thousand, a thousand, whatever it was last year. It's fair time again, and uh, we were talking about how it's so critical for fairs to become year-round partners um, with their communities, with their especially their sponsors and other businesses. Um, you know, and it. it it just, it feels like the more you give as a fair, as a business in general, um, the easier it is to then turn around and have, when you got to ask for something and say, hey, it's sponsorship time, then it would, yeah. the whole thing works a little better if everybody's supporting everybody instead of it being a one way, just trying to extract value out of a sponsor. Yeah. It reminds me of um, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. And I like it. that's what you know, fairs can be doing. I like that. Uh, so Scott, we're just about up with, uh, or out of time, but I, I appreciate you being on the show before we go, everyone who comes on the show, we go through a little speed round of questions. Um, and I want to ask you a handful of things. Give me your best answer for each. You ready? Let's do it. You can have one superpower. What is it? Fly. You could fly. I like it. First place you would travel with your family when the pandemic ends. Uh, anywhere with white sand and warm water. White sand and warm water. So Gulf Shores. <laughs> Just driving right warm, down the street. Warm water. Oh, warm. Yeah, I got it. Uh, favorite fair food? Corn dog. Corn dogs. Best concert you've ever seen? Oh, man. This is a good one. Speed uh, round. St. Paul, <laughs> Paul and the Broken Bones in Pensacola at the Vinyl Theater. I have no idea who that is. 
St. Paul and the Broken Bones. What are they? What are they saying? What kind of music? Uh, it's like this cool James Brown soundy brass uh, funk. I'll have to check it out. Scott, please give your best to your family. Uh, yeah, wish you all Safe holidays, um, and thanks for coming on the show today. All right, thanks so much. You've been listening to the Fair Game Podcast. Fair Game is a production of Robert Smith Presents. For more information, please visit robertsmithpresents.com.